whose owners, Charles and Bertha Berenger, were the first to take advantage of this loophole. Um, let me see. The year 1917 was a record year for California wines. For the first time, owing to a wartime manpower shortage, Mexican workers were recruited for the harvest. The threat of prohibition was already very real, thanks to the Anti-Saloon League. Servicemen, army guys, in uniform were not allowed into bars or saloons. It was against the law. You couldn't serve a, a, a serviceman a drink. It was to protect him. You can imagine how that went down. Oh, well. I was sober for a while before I realized I had some issues with Al-Anon. I was sober for a while before I realized that I may need to join another 12-step program or two. And I don't think that's an uncommon experience. A lot of us find we need different places to go. And as I say, when I'm in Al-Anon, I speak Al-Anon. At an AA meeting, I speak N uh, AA. In Narcotics Anonymous, I speak uh, a uh, NA. Uh, use the language of the program you're visiting. I find that pretty useful. But I found I had real family craziness, and I didn't know what to do about it. There was a lot of drinking in, in the home. Uh, my, my father's people were Irish Catholic Democrats, and my mother's people were Swedish Lutheran Republicans. And there's alcoholism everywhere. On the Irish Catholic Democratic side, we didn't call them alcoholics. You know how in alcoholic families we, we lie? We cover up, we deny, we use euphemism and circumlocution to, to talk around things. We speak in code. Uh, we're so used to it, we don't uh, notice that we're doing it. But on the, and I was sober for a while before I started noticing how deceptive ordinary speech was. On the Irish Catholic side, we didn't have alcoholics, we had characters. And they would say things like, Sean sure is a character. And what they meant was, don't let him drive. That's what they meant. Now, we do have relatives in Ireland, and, and Sean is one of them. And uh, 15 years ago, maybe, Sean and his wife and two kids came over to visit the United States. Sean was not sober. And they came to Northern California, and it was their first time over here. And they had kids, and the kids, I, I'm not good on kid ages, but I'm guessing nine and seven, something like that, uh, a boy and a girl. And um, we were going to give them a tour of San Francisco. Well, my sister-in-law came, and it took us about nine seconds to realize this was not a happy family. Sean... Um, is a little mean when he drinks and insulting and attacks his wife. And his wife looked like she'd been under attack for a couple of years. And the kids looked like the children in alcoholic families do. Their eyes are this big. So um, my sister-in-law and I figured this. We're going to keep Sean happy. 
Every two hours he gets a beer, he'll be fine. And he'll come along, he can stay in the car. We're going to take his wife and his kids out and show them a good time. We're going to have a really nice day. But we're focusing on the wife and the kids. We're not focusing on Sean because he's busy. So we just kept Sean busy and we took the others out to have a wonderful time. And we showed them the Golden Gate Bridge and we showed them this and that and had interesting food and took them to some scary neighbor, uh, neighborhoods they could tell their relatives back home about. Um, but alcoholics do that to families. They intimidate them, you know, the characters. Well, last two summers ago, they all came back. And now the little boy and little girl are married with, with husbands and wives and everyone's grown up and Sean's sober. What a different group. What a different group. And I was able to have... And sober, he's a wonderful, charming, friendly fellow who's good company. And that's the difference that recovery can make in our lives. Going from the guy that's sitting in the back seat, give him another beer to keep him quiet, to the guy you really enjoy being with. Recovery. On the, the Swedish, Lutheran, Republican side of the family, we didn't have alcoholics either. We had nervous people. And I have relatives who just got put away for nerves. Nerves and, and to be locked up, what they were is dried out. And then they were better and they'd come out and then they'd drink again and get nervous again. And my mom referred to her own mother as a really nervous person. Big Swedish farm family. My mom was like child number nine or ten. And, and uh... so... In recovery, we learn to talk about real things using simple language. We want to tell the truth. We want to clean up our messes. We want to be responsible for our debts. And we want to act like a grown-up. And a lot of times, acting like a grown-up isn't all that easy. In fact, a lot of times, I find acting like a grown-up is kind of dull. That's not bad. I was in a meeting a few years ago and I heard someone talk about alcoholism and they said, alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. Well, this is worth a little bit of reflection because uh, there are some dynamics here that are well worth taking a look at. I am the first one to say I think gorillas are fun. I think they're cute, and you can have a great time with a gorilla. But if the gorilla gets his arms around you, you can end up very dead. The casualty rate is really high in the gorilla cage. If you're clean and sober today, it means the gorilla has let go. If the gorilla has let go, get out of the cage. And don't go back into the cage even when the gorilla starts humming your song, which it does. I mean, it oh, no, 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 no. I'll never do that again. It was so disgusting and so awful and so humiliating. And it was in the papers. And I have too much self-respect to ever dance with the gorilla again. And then you hear music. 
One of my pals is in Las Vegas, and he says, Tom, I don't want to dance with the gorilla. I just want to pet it a little bit. But soon as the gorilla gets his arms around, and we all, if you hang around meetings, you'll see the casualty rates. Um, two of my friends, heroin overdose in the last two years. And in my home group meeting, which is 50 people, two women died, found dead in their apartments in the last year, one older, one younger. People who love us, our moms, our dads, our spouses, our kids, our brothers, our sisters, people who love us visit the zoo a lot. And they look at lions and tigers and bears. They, they look at giraffes. I, I'm very pro-giraffe myself. Um, I, uh, I was at a zoo not long ago, and I just spent about an hour watching the giraffes do whatever it is giraffes do. They're really pretty. Great eyes. Huge, long, terrifying purple tongue. And I hope you don't hear this as criticism, but I don't think the giraffes are bright. They're kind of cows with long necks. I mean, that's it. Just and they just chew their cud and look at you. But I like the giraffes. Then you get over to the gorilla cage and you look in the gorilla cage and you see the person you love dancing with the gorilla and you go crazy. You want to do something. And it might be your mom or your dad. It might be your best friend or your spouse or one of your kids. Those are all different kinds of crazy. And you want to do something. So what we do is we get into the cage and we start vacuuming. Very useful. Vacuum, vacuum, vacuum. We hang curtains. We make nice, nutritious meals. We repaint things. We want it to look nice for them. And when that doesn't help, we try to get between the gorilla and the person we love. And the gorilla can turn on us and yank our arms and legs off. Which is why we have a program too. And it's called Al-Anon. And a lot of the Al-Anon program comes down to stay out of the cage. It's a lot of it. But I only want a vacuum. We know. Um, and the vacuuming really isn't that helpful. It makes the gorilla mad. Um, how's this? Leave the gorilla area and come over to us. We're with the giraffes. And we can have a conversation about our own craziness and our need to vacuum gorilla cages because it's just not that effective. And we start to change our lives and change our focus into things that are really possible, perhaps for the first time. Here's my, here's my glasses. In, the, uh, in my family, we had alcoholics and addicts. We've had, I've had cousins who have overdosed on uh, prescription medication, uh, found very dead. Let's see. I found this useful. 
This is from How Al-Anon Works for Families and Friends of Alcoholics, page 5. Many of us believe that we know the real problem with our friend or relative and that it has nothing to do with alcohol. We identify the problem as a bad temper, immaturity, too much or too little religion, lack of willpower, bad luck, the wrong boss, or the wrong friends, or the wrong city, the children, the in-laws, physical illness or disability, financial responsibility, irresponsibility, or any number of other things. When it is suggested that the underlying problem may be alcoholism, we balk. After all, alcoholics are dirty, smelly, deranged bums who live on the street and have lost everything they once cherished, or at least this is what we've always believed. In reality, many alcoholics have jobs, homes, families, and untarnished images of respectability. Their drinking may not be readily apparent, or it may seem barely, seen, barely noticeable compared to the problems that often go hand in hand with the drinking. The violence, the financial and legal problems, insults and excuses, unreliable and irresponsible behavior. Besides, if everyone in our lives drinks to excess, alcoholic drinking may seem perfectly normal. We did this with kids. I used to go and talk to kids about this. I'm much too old to do that right now. I'm not credible. Uh, they look at me and say, isn't it nice that elderly white gentleman stopped drinking, but he's five minutes from being dead, so why not? It's really effective talking to high school kids to have someone who's 17 years old with three years of recovery. That's Who's, or, or nine months of recovery. That's who they can listen to. We who have been affected by someone else's drinking find ourselves inexplicably haunted by insecurity, fear, guilt, obsession with others, or an overwhelming need to control every person and situation we encounter. And although our loved ones appear to be the ones with the problems. We secretly blame ourselves, feeling that somehow we are the cause of the trouble, or that we should have been able to overcome it with love, prayer, hard work, intelligence, or perseverance. And this is a hard truth for a lot of us. If you love an alcoholic, there's not much you can do for the alcoholic. There's powerlessness there. It's real true for moms and dads. It's real true for spouses. You know? The one you love is the last one you can do anything for. It's not fair, but it's true. For some reason, strangers can work with strangers. But it's real hard to do this if you're involved with someone. I was talking to this guy. He's very dramatic, far too dramatic for me. He's very, very dramatic. And he keeps on thinking that he should be able to, and this is his language, save and protect the people he loves. And I said, who told you that? <laughs> well, I think he saw it in a movie, you know. 
or you listen to a little too much country western music, you know? And it, it, that's not the real world. The real world for a lot of us is love is powerless. Powerless. There's so little we can do for those we love the most. It's kind of a, the experience of being God. There's so little we can do for people we love, I think. You know? Why doesn't God do something? What can God do? Big question. I have no answer for that. Most of us have argued, pleaded, bargained, threatened, walked out, come back, given ultimatums, failed to carry them out, or carried them out and felt guilty. We've tried to reason with the drinkers, schedule their free time, monitored their behavior. We've complained, we've prayed, we've tried to avoid doing anything that might cause the alcoholic to drink. We've searched for opportunities to make the drinkers see how destructive their drinking can be. Mostly, we've hurt and we've worried. If you're a great worrier, we turn the people we're worried about over to God's good care. And we get out of the way. I was told this by a Baptist in Texas, and you know how serious they are. He said, here's the prayer. Oh God, reveal what needs revealing and heal what needs healing. And then she said, then duck. Because things are going to change. Heal what needs healing and reveal what needs revealing. Sometimes when I pray, I, probably you don't do this, but have you ever given God advice? Uh, explain to God how things should go and, and when they should happen and what's best for everybody. Uh, I just find that shocking. Shocking. Now I... Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Not my will be done. Thy will be done. Whatever that looks like. There's a 19th century French Jesuit. De Caussade. C-A-U-S-S-A-D-E, I think is the spelling. And in the 1600s, he wrote a book on abandonment to divine providence, which is kind of turning things over. And he talks about this whole process of, of, of dealing with God in the third step and turning things over. And he says, you know, so many of us find it so difficult. We don't trust God. We, we're afraid of losing control. We think we have control. We, 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 we think we're managing this and we're managing that. And we just, we, we can hand over to God's care A, but we can't hand over to God's care B because of a hundred reasons and I know best. And What he suggested, and this is in the late 1600s, if you find it difficult to turn everything over to God's care, for always and ever. Just turn over now. Now. 
now. Throughout the day. Turn over now. And that's something I can remember to do. A lot of us, we turn things over and take things back and turn things over and take things back. I think that's what a lot of people do. It's not bad, it's just what a lot of people do. When I find I've taken it back, I want to remember to turn it over. Turn it over. God works through people. God works through nature. God works through my own history and the history of other persons. God works. God is active, I think. There are so many different ways of understanding God. Um, Thomas Jefferson has a way of understanding God that's not mine. Voltaire has a way of understanding God that's not mine. Jean-Jacques Rousseau has a way of understanding God that is not mine. Many people have ways of understanding God. We come to our own understandings. Ignatius Loyola believes that God is at work. The world is moving, the world is changing, the world is evolving, the world is growing. Somehow, a power greater than ourselves is involved in all this. What I want to do is make a connection with that power. It's rather like looking for where is the electrical light switch so I can turn on the electricity. I don't want to pay attention to those places where I can feel, sense, be aware of a power greater than myself. Where are there places where there's oxygen? Where are there places where there is vitality? A lot of times places like that for me are at meetings. There's a great hero of the American West, John Muir, M-U-I-R, and he was one of the great defenders of the national parks. Um, Kenneth Burns' film set on the national parks as features him and and... Um, John Muir is from Scotland and he comes out to the west and he sees the Rockies and Yellowstone and the Yosemite Valley and he is literally amazed by these. And he says, uh, to connect with God, you don't have to uh, go into a cathedral or open any book. You can just go into the Yosemite Valley. And if you look at the cliffs, you will see the face of God. And in the 1900s, there's a real understanding among American painters who are painting these remarkable landscapes of the Rockies and the prairies and the zillion buffalo, all of those things of American painters. They think they are painting the face of God in the landscape. I think there's some truth there. Lots of us make that connection with nature. The mountains the deserts, the ocean. You got to know where you make your connection and then you need to go there. And for me regularly, a good connection is made at a meeting. Sometimes church, sometimes cemeteries, sometimes subways. In the fourth edition on page 449, a man tells his story. 
It's entitled, He Lived Only to Drink. He starts by writing, On looking back at my life, I can't see anything that would have warned me or my family of the devastation that alcoholism had in store for us. In our collective memory, there was no drinking on either side of the family. We were from a long Southern Missionary Baptist tradition. My father was a minister, and I attended church every Sunday with the rest of the family. And like them, I was very involved in religious work. My parents were also educators. My father was principal of the school I attended, and my mother taught there. They were both champions of community outreach and well-respected. There was caring and togetherness among us. My maternal grandmother, herself a deeply religious woman who lived with us, helped raise me and was a living example of unconditional love. What a great background. Add alcohol. And with this young man, it was chaos. Loses everything. Loses everything. I wound up in an insane asylum, which probably saved my life. I don't remember how I got there. I do know that I had become suicidal. I became comfortable there. And months later, I cried when I was dismissed. Some of us get institutionalized. You know, we like it inside. I knew by that time that I could not make it in the world. I was safe behind the barred hospital windows and wanted to stay there for the rest of my life. I could not drink there, but tranquilizers and other drugs abounded, and I helped myself to them. The word alcoholic was never mentioned. I do not believe the doctors knew much more about alcoholism than I did, and that's true a lot. So many people don't know anything about alcoholism. When I was released from the asylum, what a great line. I moved to a large city to make a new beginning. My life had become a series of new beginnings. In time, I picked up the drink, got good jobs, and lost them as I had in the past. All the fear and remorse and terrible depression returned tenfold. It still did not register that the drinking might be the cause of all this misery. See, I've got problems. I mean, I, I have financial problems. Problems with my family. Prob problems at work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my health, I have problems with. And Oh, and I drink too much sometimes. Surely that's not the major deal. Let me work on everything else. What, what I found um, with alcoholics and addicts, get us sober first. And then the other things can get taken care of. If we don't get sober first, the other things never get taken care of. It's a first things first situation. I sold my blood, I prostituted myself, I drank more. I became homeless and slept in the bus and train terminals. I scrounged cigarette butts off the sidewalks and drank from a common wine bottle with other drunks. I drank my way 
to the men's municipal shelter and made it my home. I panhandled. By this time, I lived only to drink. I did not bathe or change clothes. I stank. I became thin and ill. I had begun to hear voices and accepted them as death omens. I was frightened, arrogant, enraged, and resentful of man, God, and the universe. There was nothing else to live for. I was too frightened to die. That's a really good first step. Powerless, unmanageable, misery. It was at this point that a woman who was a social worker on Skid Row and a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous sat me down in her office and told me her story, how she drank, what happened, how she got sober. No one had ever done this before. I had been preached to, analyzed, cursed, and counseled, but no one had ever said, I identify with what's going on with you. It happened to me. This is what I did about it. She got me to my first AA meeting that same evening. Now, a lot of us have been preached to, analyzed, cursed, and counseled. And it's not very effective. You know, it, it, it doesn't help. If your wiring is like mine, it just doesn't help. Preaching to us, please. Analyzing us. You know what your problem is? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> Cursing us. Damn you, you some bitch. You know, oh, that's our, thank you. I, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And counseling. Can I give you a little advice? You know, everyone else is. Um, I don't know this, but what I suspect is that this woman who was a social worker was having a thirsty day. And she knew what she needed to do to stay sober. Like Bill and Bob, and Bill and Bob and AA guy number three, she needed to find a drunk and she looked up and there he was. Sit down. Let me tell you what's going on. She got him to an e a meeting that evening. Page 450. The people at the meetings gathered around me in kindness in those early days. I did not drink. But the spiritual demons of withdrawal descended on me. We don't talk about that very much. But the fact is a lot of us, when we're three months or six months or eight months sober, are very crazy. Because we don't know anything yet. We've been sedated for years. And suddenly we're waking up and it's not pretty. And all of this stuff we have been ignoring, running from, is staring us in the face. And this is another reason why meetings and conversations and sponsorship and step work is pretty important. Asking God for help and doing an inventory. If you're really miserable, start the inventory. How miserable are you? Are you miserable enough to write? That's great. Let's start writing. And then to share that with someone else. I find for myself, if I'm comfortable, I, I'm not that interested in any steps. If I'm miserable, I get very interested. I was sober. Uh, I got sober in, in Northern California. We had small meetings. 20 people, 30 people, 8 people. 
I, I was a year sober. I moved to Los Angeles, and there were huge meetings. 200, 500 people, huge meetings. And they all clapped, and I did not get sober in clapping AA, so that was very upsetting for me. Uh, all these clappy people, happy, clappy, upbeat people with the greeters at the door. Oh, please, you know, I, I don't want to greet you. I just want to sit down and, you know, judge the speaker. Um, and they were all the you know, big, big groups. So any, and I had a sponsor. I, I wrote the Archbishop of Los Angeles, and I said, I'm coming to L.A., and are there any sober priests? And he wrote me back with my sponsor's name, and, and I got in on a Friday, called him on Monday, and, and he's been my sponsor ever since, although I didn't like him for a couple of years, but who likes their sponsor for the first couple of years? Um, I, I, I needed his, his company. And anyway, I'm, I'm there, and I'm, I'm not fitting in. I'm not making friends. I'm not fitting in. I'm not making friends. And I don't know how to do this. If we were sharing drugs, I'd know how to do that. Uh, how do you become friends? Bring more beer. You know, you're my best friend. But clean and sober, how do you do this people thing? And I felt very awkward. And I figured what I needed was smaller meetings. Because I, I was so, I'm in my second year of sobriety at this time, and it's very, very awkward. It's like um, I, I didn't have skin grown over my nerve endings, everything. And I'm teaching, and it's overwhelming, and all these kids. And I, there's nothing but stress and strength. Hard. No self-confidence at all. Not, everything is effort. So I asked my sponsor, are there any small meetings in Southern California? And he said, try a big book study. They are always small. And that's the rule. Wherever I've been, they're small. And usually the people who go there have a certain amount of desperation. You know? and this, so I started, I found a big book study at a Korean church on Olympic Boulevard on Friday nights. And there were... 12 to 18 regulars. I had just turned 30. These were women and men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And they became my first friends. Took a long time. But the, the, the spiritual demons of withdrawal, all these issues. What do you do about this? And what do you do about that? And I don't understand. I'm having emotions. I'm having fear. I mean, it, it was very uncomfortable. Instead of saying, oh, you've been clean two years. You must be doing great. <laughs> I'm ready to explode. The spiritual demons of withdrawal descended on me. I was black. These people were white. What did they know about suffering? I'm the only one who's ever suffered. Don't you people know that? Little self-obsessed. What could they tell me? I was black and bright and the world had consistently rejected me for it. I hated this world, its people, and its punishing God. Yet I believe the people in AA were sincere and whatever they believed in was working for them. I just did not believe that AA would work for me as a black drunk. I can't tell you how much I identify with this guy. That feeling of being unique, special, and different. Unique, special, different. And I went to meetings, and I went to meetings, and I went to meetings. I'm almost done. And what started working for me was I got a little bit of hope. And the little bit of hope was that there might be a way out. And that's step two. 
and we'll talk more about hope tomorrow. Thanks for being here today.